This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina Young, and today we're talking about wild horses in the West with Eric Thacker. I'm Eric Thacker. I'm a range extension specialist at Utah State University, and I'm also an associate professor in the Wildland Resources Department at Utah State. Here, Eric talks about the history of wild horses, their impacts on rangelands, and what management can look like moving forward. We start with Eric giving an overview of wild horses in the American West. Historically speaking, horses went extinct just after the last ice age. They share a lot of DNA and common ancestry with Asian horses, you know, the horses that remained in Asia. But the Yukon horse went extinct about 10,000-ish years ago. So horses essentially go extinct, reintroduced by the Spanish in the, in the 1400s. And then they've rapidly spread and kind of recolonized, if you will, North America. Native Americans became very good horsemen and took advantage of that to their benefit. The Plains Indians, for example, relied on horses heavily. It completely changed their culture, their way of life. So as the West expanded, those horses were used as animals of burden and became very important. You know, the West is replete with examples and anecdotes of how important horses were. Then you fast forward, the way of life changed for a lot of the West, you know, started to become more, more settled. And a lot of horses were maintained on rangelands as a resource still for ranches. And then over time, as ranches changed and the need for the number of horses changed, then there was just kind of these leftover horses running on the range. I think the thing that gets lost sometimes is there was some egregious treatment of wild horses prior to the passage of the Wild Horse and Burrow Act. The way they were captured or the way they were treated in order to get rid of them to reduce competition for livestock, forage, and other things. A lady that was, that came to be known as um, Wild Horse Annie basically mounts a letter writing campaign by visiting elementary schools all over the country, encouraging students to write letters to their congressmen, representatives. And so in 1971, the Wild Horse and Burrow Act passes with not a dissenting vote. I think there may have been like two dissenting votes. So to me, this wild horse issue isn't about necessarily taking care of the horses at this point. They have sufficient protection to ensure that they will persist long after I'm gone or anybody else for that matter. However, I think where the, the problem has come now is how do we manage horses in a way that their populations are sustainable, but yet their use of the landscape isn't unsustainable. In the wild horse and burrow legislation, the directive to the BLM is that they will manage wild horses in a thriving ecological balance, which I still don't know what that means. You, you know, even with your ecological background, I think you could appreciate the complexity of that statement. So I think that's where things have really gotten interesting with wild horse and burrows, and it's very polarized. So on one side, you have people that are very adamant about the protection of wild horses. Currently there's give or take 90,000 horses out on the range. There's about another 50-ish thousand horses in BLM long-term holding facilities. Kind of currently where we're at, the wild horse and burrow program nationally had set the limit on wild horses at 27,000. That's how many they decided they could have meet this thriving ecological balance you know, we're clearly almost five times that now. So there's some concern over how many horses um, are on the land and there's some apparent damage that's being done at where we're at today with wild horses. I'm wondering 
we talked about how they're called wild horses, but they were domesticated animals and, and domesticated animals have different, they change from how they were before they were domesticated. And so I was wondering if you could break down maybe a little bit of the biology of, of these horses for me and tell me how they're different from wild animals and what that might mean for their populations in the West. There's only a few things that we know for certain that really separate them. The, the first is their population growth rate. Wild horses are reproducing at a rate of 15 to 20% annually. So to put that in perspective, I'm not an, aware of any other native wildlife species that's reproducing year in, year out at a rate of 15 to 20%. So they are off the charts in terms of reproduction potential. And like a lot of our larger mammals, usually the struggle is once you've survived to about 10 to 12 months, then your survival rates go through the roof. So you can kind of see the scenario it sets up. You've got the species that's able to reproduce at a rate faster than any of its large mammal counterparts on a landscape. It lives as long or longer than those counterparts, and it is afforded more legal protection than any of the counterparts. So if you think about bison or you think about elk or mule deer or, you know, any of the other large mammals that we still have remaining in North America, you know, even think of grizzly bears, their reproductive rates are nowhere near 15 to 20% annually. Again, those are species that are long lived, but the reproductive rates, I think is what really sets wild horses apart. Now, why that is, you know, you could speculate that because horses were brought into captivity and domesticated, they were selectively bred to reproduce at a higher rate than they naturally or normally would have if they were, you know, still a wild animal. So I think that's the one thing that we're certain of that sets them apart from other wildlife. The arguments often made that wild horses have been on these landscapes for 500 years. And so over that time, they've evolved and adapted, and they're now different than a domesticated horse that, you know, you might have in your back pasture at home. There's no real strong evidence for that. Plus the infusion of horses that are still being turned loose that enter that wild horse herd would make it harder for me to think they've genetically separated themselves. Super interesting. You know, we're talking about a lot about evolution and I'm thinking about evolution from the other side of the coin and I'm thinking about the evolution of ecosystems and grazing pressure. And I'm thinking about these places that have lots of wild horses in the southwest where we're seeing them in Nevada and and you know increasingly in Utah and other and other dry regions and I'm wondering the last remnant of horses wasn't that long ago evolutionarily are these systems are they evolved in any way to accommodate these kinds of relationships well, with horses no they're not horses in their evolutionary history were a grassland steppe species so I find it super interesting that almost all of our wild horse herds today are not in areas you would consider a grass or a, a grassland steppe. Our grasslands, our grassland steppe would be everything from Eastern New Mexico, you know, all the way up through Colorado, Montana, East into the Great Plains. And uh, we don't have wild horses, non-captive wild horses in any of those areas. So most of those horses are occurring either in semi, deserts, sagebrush steppe, or some other shrub dominated system. So they're not in systems that evolved, quote unquote, with horses with, you know, incredibly heavy herbivory. 
to me, this is where the argument really kind of comes back to the need for management. It's not to say that horses can't persist there, but the management in order to make sure that that habitat is taken care of becomes imperative. It's why cattle grazing, if it's to be sustainable in a desert ecosystem, has to be very closely managed and monitored. Otherwise, you're damaging those ecosystems. The other thing that this kind of indirectly highlights is there's no strong population regulatory mechanism in the wild horse herds. Like if we look at mule deer and elk and these other native ungulates, you know, they have all sorts of checks and balances within their population growth structure that helps curb population. So as their populations start getting too high, you know, body conditions decline, disease becomes more rampant. Plus you have a whole predator community set up to help reduce those populations. But again, horses have no natural predators in North America. So even from an evolutionary standpoint, the suite of species they evolved with, the suite of predators are all gone, right? We had the short-faced bear and we had saber-toothed tigers and we had a cheetah, a North American cheetah at the point. Those are all, those are all gone, right? So we don't even have the same suite of predators. There's also no mechanism to help control populations like we would see in other large mammals. Just again, kind of pointing out they're different than everything else on the landscape. You know, you mentioned that they're in these dry places and you mentioned that they're very fragile and that they're slow to recover. But I was wondering if you could really paint a picture of what it looks like to have a large number of big animals in a very dry place. I think, you know, we throw around these words like damaged and and degraded, but I, I wonder if people really can picture what a range can look like after wild horses have been on it for a long time. The first thing that happens is you place a bunch of large herbivores into any system without any sort of population checks, controls, and balances. So this would be the same if it was elk, bison, mule deer. Anytime you have more animals on the landscape than it can maintain, the first thing that happens is they're overusing or they're eating too much of the forage, primarily grasses and forbs. So as that happens over time, it does. it's not just a single event. It's We're talking often decades worth of eating too much of the grass to where the grass can't be vigorous, it can't be healthy, it can't replenish its roots. So the first thing you do is you kind of start, you start losing some of those grass plants. It's very difficult for other grass plants to establish behind them because they're just being repeatedly eaten again and again and again. So you've just got too many animals taking too much of that forage resource out of the system. So what happens with that is you get increased trampling, which means your soils become more dense, there's less airspace, which slows the infiltration of water. So strike one, you're now getting less water into the soil. You've lost plants, strike two. Now those two things feed back on themselves, which makes it even more difficult. Now the soils become drier than they were previously. The animals are still there. The pressure on the remaining grasses increases. So you can kind of see this cascade, if you will, of continually removing the forage to where just less and less grass so at this point, this is when we start to see other undesirable plants come in, cheatgrass, nasty weeds. Cheatgrass is the primary concern across most of the horse range because the cheatgrass can establish, it can handle some of that heavy grazing. It's an incredibly short life cycle. And so it persists. And we watch the native grasses and shrubs disappear as the cheatgrass persists. So that's kind of the first shift. But then as the horses start running out of the forage they prefer, which is grasses and forbs, then they start switching to other things. I think the other thing that's become incredibly clear are horses are incredibly tough animals and they're very resilient. 
So I've seen them switch to browse species that a lot of wildlife don't like. Things such as rubber rabbit brush. I've never really consistently saw that being used by even deer and elk and other browsing animals, but I've been on wild horse ranges where that's been eaten into the ground. So what that tells me is they've depleted all of their desirable forage. So they now switch to these other shrubs and other things, which then now you're impacting the forage base of other species. You're losing plant diversity. Your soils are changing. So you're now kind of sliding into this point where you may not be able to recover that system without some significant input. Simply removing horses at some point won't fix the problems. In fact, my concern is a lot of the areas with wild horses have probably already crossed that ecological threshold. And this is all right down your alley of expertise. So, right, so it's already crossed some sort of a threshold and they, the systems don't have the resilience to kind of rebuild themselves. And so it's going to take some incredible effort on our part to rebuild those systems. As a range ecologist, this is my biggest concern. I like horses. I had horses growing up, but as we lose the ability of these lands to produce forage and habitat for various wildlife species, we're not just impacting horses and we're not just impacting grazing, which are those two are the things that often get pitted against each other the most is livestock grazing and horses. But as we lose that vegetation, we lose the ability to have mule deer habitat, songbird habitat, pronghorn habitat, burrowing owl habitat, right? All of those things are indirectly or directly affected by these degraded rangelands. Then at some point you start losing soil through erosion. And once you start losing soil through erosion in these desert ecosystems, soil takes an incredibly long time to rebuild and form. And so you're really sliding into a place where we probably won't recover to the productivity we'd experienced before. Now that you lay climate change on top of all of that, now this sounds really depressing, I'm sorry. You have talked a little bit about the relationship between cattle and wild horses. I would love to hear just a little bit more in thinking about why we're talking about limiting wild horse numbers and maybe some people think we're maybe not talking about limiting cattle numbers. And so what, what's that relationship look like and, and what does that look yeah. like moving forward? one of the most difficult things to really kind of get your head around is, is the grazing. So from an advocacy side, you'll hear things all the time like, you know, everybody's complaining about wild horses, but they only occur on 11% of BLM land. So is this really that big a problem? And then they'll throw out the number of AUMs. They'll say there's 2 million cattle AUMs and only 90,000 horses. That's a nice philosophical argument. And so the realist view of the situation is the way that we're currently permitted on public lands is there's a certain amount of space and forage allotted for cattle. And it's done, again, through a legal act, through the 1934 Taylor Grazing Act. And then on the flip side, you have the 1971 Wild Horse and Burrow Act that also gives them legal standing to be on those same lands. So rather than thinking of it as an either or, I think we should think about it as these need to be managed in conjunction. So the whole philosophical argument is which deserves to be there. I think you'll never have a conclusion to that argument because it's a value-laden argument. As a scientist, I kind of sort through that because there's no conclusion to that argument. But what I look at is we have a landscape that the BLM has set numbers currently in order to maintain some level of sustainability. So that's the realistic parameters that we're given to work with. Because simply removing cattle doesn't solve the problem we're experiencing. So in most cases in 30 years, you've exceeded the number of cattle that are on rangelands with horses, we still have a problem. We still have too many animals. We still have 
ecosystems that are being degraded because we have too many animals. And to me, the other huge difference between cattle and horses is cattle, the BLM has ultimate control over how that grazing looks. They determine the time, how many animals, they can decide halfway through a year, it's really dry, we want you to take the cows and go home early. But with horses, there's no current management mechanism that really allows the BLM to be that flexible in their management of numbers. So the point is, arguing over whether we should have more cows or more horses on rangeland to me is irrelevant until we solve the problem about how we are going to manage wild horses. Now, once we figure all that out and we figure out how we're going to do it ethically and so everybody's happy about it or at least can support it, until that's figured out, it's irrelevant to have an argument over how many additional horses we should add to the rangeland. My concern is a lot of people have the mistaken view that if we just simply got rid of cattle, that this whole thing magically would just be okay. But it actually just makes a much bigger problem. So in 30 years, we would be over a million horses. To me, again, this just becomes about how do we manage animals in a way that our rangelands are sustainable. How do we manage animals in a way that our rangelands are sustainable, Eric? <laughs> this is the part of my job that a lot of people think is boring. The science here really hasn't changed in in over 50 years. And, and the simple answer is, we just have to limit the number of animals on a landscape. I visited with a young man from the Yakima tribe about six months ago. He was helping to manage some horses on a reservation up there. And I found it really interesting as I was talking to him, I realized that Native Americans had been heavily involved in managing wild horse populations long before you know, the 1971 Wild Horse and Burrow Act. And so it really resonated with me that these animals have never necessarily been without the influence of human management. So to suggest that they should persist on these landscapes without human management is a really poor argument, in, in my opinion. To answer your question, it's, it's pretty simple. It's just controlling the number of animals on a landscape. I've heard Utah's maybe six fifth or six or something for wild horse numbers. I mean, are we seeing that we're in a, a bit of a political gridlock in reality? Like, what does the next decade look like for wild horses? Thinking about southeastern Utah, where we don't have a ton, what does that start looking like? On one hand, I have some real concerns because we didn't get into this problem overnight. So the very pessimistic view is we could see this problem grow and grow and grow and grow. And you could argue that we don't have the fortitude and we can't find the consensus on an appropriate way to manage horses to really deal with the problem. The more optimistic side of me says there's a group called the Path Forward. I think it's a revolutionary group, but it's an interesting group because you've got everybody from the Cattlemen's Association to the Humane Society. They've formed a, a management strategy that they've lobbied hard to the legislature and to Congress to get implementation. That led directly to 21 million additional dollars for wild horse management that we saw happen in 2020, where they did a lot of gathers to get numbers down. But the basic premise of that whole management plan is, if we don't do something now, this problem is only going to get much worse. Utah State's been heavily involved in the Freeze Network, which is, again, it's a conglomeration of all these groups that are concerned about wild horses, spanning the spectrum from county governments to wildlife agencies, all the way to wild horse advocacy groups, trying to educate people on the realities of wild horse management in hopes of creating more consensus around appropriate management of her wild horses so that we can protect our wildlife and our, our wild lands. 
Well, I'm glad to hear that there's there's some hope in your voice and a hopeful <laughs> note uh, moving forward. Eric, thank you so much for taking the time and breaking this all down for us and, and raising these important points. Um, we really We really appreciate talking to you. Thank you. To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Science Moab is done in partnership with Utah State University Extension. Our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding, and the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.